Ezekiel 20. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain, el- certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know of, let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all the lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath against them, upon them, and sin, and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that is, it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Verse 40. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all, of, with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give, you, give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is the very word of God. I think I declared this love of mine before that I love history. And I find it fascinating to read about historical events, community life, economic systems, travels, discoveries, building of great monuments, periods of growth, and other feats. But every reader of history knows that there are also periods of decline, wars, exiles, rebellions, and the regress of many human systems of government. That's probably a big reason why when my family came to know Christ, I loved reading the Bible because it is a historical book, which interestingly mixes both narrative and poetry sometimes in the retelling of history. For example, several Psalms are about Israel's past. Psalm 136, which we read together in tandem a few minutes ago, calls the people to remember the steadfast love of God 
and give thanks to him for the things he has done. But Psalm 106, which overlaps significantly with the chapter we have today before us, is a lament of the people's rebellion, and it calls on God to save them yet once more. These Psalms and other historical passages oftentimes mention specific events and names like Joshua, Moses, Meribah, and Canaan. But the chapter before us today is somewhat unique in reciting Israel's history of rebellion for several generations. The only name mentioned in this chapter is the name of God. With his mighty acts and holy law in the background, the passage focuses on how the people have shunned his rules and disobeyed his statutes, even though his purposes had been all along to sanctify them for the sake of his name by doing wonders among them and through them. The Lord is here speaking to Ezekiel about the people who came to inquire of him. He is acting for the sake of his name, and he declares that he alone sanctifies. Indeed, he is holiness, as we sang this morning. And he calls his people to be holy, for he himself is holy. It's in this context that we come to chapter 20 of Ezekiel, which takes place in August of 591 B.C. A delegation of elders from the people of Israel comes to Ezekiel asking for a word from the Lord. We don't know the specific request they had in mind, but we know what they got. Words of accusation, judgment, and warning. A retelling of their rebellion, a reminder of the Lord's purposes in choosing them, his call to them to be sanctified, his forbearance, the primacy of his name in his dealings with them, and surprisingly, later on in the chapter, a promise of restoration. If we were to distill all of these points to a few, we could say the passage details the faithlessness of man, it focuses on the name of Yahweh, then it magnifies the faithfulness of God. The passage focuses on, on the faithlessness of man, the name of Yahweh, and the faithfulness of God. First, the faithlessness of man. The chapter begins by the rebellious people coming to inquire of God. Now, this was a common practice of the people and their kings, but a lot of times they ignored God, yet when in a pinch, they turned to the prophets they had neglected and even at times tried to go. We see an example of this in 1 Kings 22, where at the behest of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Ahab, king of Israel, sought advice on fighting Syria from the prophet Micaiah, whom he had shunned and hated. In fact, right after Micaiah comes and delivers the word of the Lord to the king at his request, he ends up berated by Ahab, beaten up by some of the false prophets, and thrown in prison. Jeremiah suffers a comparable outcome, and many of the other prophets. In a similar manner here, the rebellious people come to Ezekiel, but God has been exasperated by them because he knows their desires are selfish. And they are about to receive a history lesson. This lesson is different from others, where the purpose is to, is to retell God's mighty works with the goal of glorifying him like in the Psalms. But with a judgment motif, and as a good historian, he goes on to detail the rebellious history over several generations to this very day, from the forefathers in Egypt to the fathers in the wilderness, and then the children during the Exodus, and then all who entered Canaan. 
and the pattern repeats itself. In verses 5 through 9, the people in Egypt forsook God and became loyal to idols. They should have been judged in wrath, but for his name's sake, God relented. Instead of destroying them, he graciously delivered them from their exile. He did it for his name's sake, not wanting his name to be profaned among the nations. In verses 10 through 17, as they were in the wilderness now, he gave them his laws and statutes to sanctify them, to give them life, and to set them apart from the nations around them. He gave them his Sabbath as a sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham and his descendants forever. Yet they rebelled and grumbled and turned to worshiping idols, worshiping Baal and the Asherah. He should have judged them in wrath, but once more, for his name's sake, he spared them from destruction so that his name is not profaned. He even went on to graciously deliver them by bringing them into the promised land. In verses 18 through 26, it was now time for the children to rebel in the wilderness. He had warned them not to act in disobedience and idolatry like their parents did. He gave them the commands to have life, to be holy and set apart, to observe his Sabbath, and to know he is the Lord. But once more, they rebelled. He should have judged them in wrath, but again, for his name's sake, he withheld his hand so that his name is not profaned. These children should have learned from observing their parents, from having the laws and the statutes, from keeping the Passover and the feasts of remembrance, the goal of which was always to remind them of what God has done. So their accountability was higher when they gave themselves over to their father's idols and to the abominations around them. The Lord was so fed up with them that we find as scary of a matter as verse 25 points out right in the middle of the chapter. Look at it with me. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. Until this point, everything he had been giving them was to give them life, to set them apart for his name's sake. But this time he's saying, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. Now, this is a puzzling verse. Does God give bad statutes or lethal rules? Is this not the inclination of our hearts to think that way of God, to accuse him of wrongdoing at the smallest trouble? As I was pondering this verse, I came to the following realization. One of the most precarious, one of the scariest places to be in is a place where for so long and for so many times, we either do not pray for the Lord's will to be done, nor do we ask him to do his will, or even both, or even worse. We ignore his will altogether, forsaking his commands, which are good, which are for life. And in this rebellion, he might, he just might, step aside and tell us, if you do not want my will to be done, let your will be done. And he proceeds to withhold his providential restraint of our evil. We then find ourselves in a situation like the one Paul talks about in Romans 
chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. He said, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And God gave them up to a debased mind. And then he proceeds to tell us that they went on to reap in their own body the results and consequences of their own sins. This giving up results in reaping death. The answer is no, brothers and sisters. God does not give bad statutes, nor does he give deadly rules. But in his sovereignty and ordaining of the universe, he just might turn a passive hand to his retribution and let people reap the full consequences of doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is a scary place. It is a deadly place. The retelling of rebellious history comes then to its climax in verses 27 through 32, which handles the people's rebellion after entering the promised land where they continued to defile themselves with the worship of the nations around them. Instead of sanctifying themselves apart from the nations, they embraced their idols and performed even more egregious sins like offering their children as a sacrifice. Their loyalty to idols was disloyalty to God. And the Lord does not give his glory to another, nor his praise to carved idols. This defilement did not perish with the previous generations, but continued to the current one, now sitting before Ezekiel, which he is addressing firsthand. And Ezekiel is telling them, you have not heeded what has been written for your instruction and for your sanctification. So I refuse to listen to you. For you have left the fountain of life and rejected the sovereign king, choosing to become like the nations around you, whom the Lord set you apart from, so that you could sanctify his name among them. But instead, you gave yourselves up for idolatry and profaned his name. This, O people, is the extent of your faithlessness. Therefore, I refuse your inquiry and speak judgment over you. Your schemes will come to nothing. Thus ends the retelling of history with the promise that idolatry will not win and the people's rebellion will fail. Now, throughout this chapter, there's been an underlying thread of focus on the name of God. A name is an intricate part of someone's identity. You can so identify a name with a person that when you hear their name referenced, oftentimes you also think of the person's character, habits, voice, looks, attributes, and even quirks. Now, some people give their children names with a certain character in mind, one they hope that they can achieve in the future, such as Sage, or Grace, or Felicity. And some people give their children names that they hope that they would um, embody in the future, like Quinn, for example, for Wise, or Liam for strong-willed, or Ethan for firm. Parents, if those uh, are not what you meant by naming your children, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> now, others choose names for their beauty or even the ring of how they sound, even if that ring might become old in about a few years. Some children grow to love their name, and others hate them, and they may even go on to change them. And I realized, now living in the States, that that's probably one of the benefits of having a middle name. 
Because if you don't like your first, you can choose your middle name. And that's probably true for many people that I have encountered. Now, most people in the world have one name. Some people have a middle name, so they could have two names. But if someone has many names, you might start wondering if they work for a shady organization or if they have multiple personalities. But God has multiple names that the canon of Scripture is rich with. He's neither a spy, nor does he have multiple personalities. His names describe his character. They ascribe to him attributes, and they detail how he relates to the universe and to people. For example, he is Adonai. He's the Lord. He is our master. He is El Elyon, God Most High. He is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. He is Yahweh. That's the capital L-O-R-D that you see in your Bibles. He is the I Am. He is Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh Ra, the Lord who is our shepherd. Those are all names of God that ascribe to him attributes. They are who he is. They are how he relates to his people. Now, one of those names is less known to our modern ear, especially with our English translations. And the name is Yahweh Mekodeshkem, the Lord who sanctifies you. It is found in two places with a slight variation in this chapter. In Exodus 31, 13 and Leviticus 20 and verse 8. In Exodus, the Lord commands the people through Moses to keep his Sabbath as a sign between him and them for all generations so that they may know that he is the Lord who sanctifies them. In Leviticus, the Lord warns his people to be set apart from the nations around them and to stay away from their sins, specifically mentioning child sacrifice, which he also mentions in this chapter, and asks them to keep his rules and statutes, consecrating themselves because he is the Lord who sanctifies them. And here in verse 12, he says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I am Yahweh Mekodeshem. This is the Lord again declaring once more his purpose for his name to be the holiness of his people. We said earlier that this history lesson is unique in this chapter, and we see this in two ways. On one hand, there is absolutely no mention of people. There's no mention of Moses bringing them out of Egypt, of Joshua letting them go into the promised land. And on the other hand, the key focus is on the purposes of God and on the name of God. In fact, four places he said, I acted for the sake of my name, in verses 9, 14, 22, and 44. And six times he, he says that they might know that I am the Lord, or that my name in the Lord is the Lord. So 10 times he repeats in this chapter that he did all things so that his name is known. The Lord had promised great things for his people and had repeatedly called them to be holy so that he would do wonders among them. That's what he told them through Joshua, consecrate, to, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow I will do great wonders among you. He gave them statutes and laws to walk in his ways, to find life, and to be a light for the nations for his name. But the house of Israel rebelled against the Lord. 
beginning in Egypt, then in the wilderness, and kept doing so throughout their journey in the promised land, in the exile, and even after returning from the exile from Babylon, and as we know, throughout history until the coming of Christ. They even refused the rest that he had given them, desecrating his Sabbath, disregarding his commandments, failing to worship him, and profaning his name. You see, the purposes of the law and the Sabbath were both remembrance of his works and also signs of the covenant that he had made with them. In the same way, our worship today and our gathering together is a reminder of his works, of his covenant with us, and they contain a sign and seal of this covenant, namely, as we gather together to receive the word of God and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is the sign of us belonging to the new covenant and the seal of our sanctification by the Holy Spirit, that we are church set apart from this world to do the purposes of our God and to be ambassadors for his name and for his gospel. This is why the Lord holds his name above every other name, because his name means his character. He is the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, the Holy One, the God who sanctifies for the sake of his name among the nations. He does it not only so that his name is not profaned, but so that his name is proclaimed as holy. It's not only a negative thing, so that his name is not profaned, but a positive thing, so that his name is known as holy and glorious among the nations. So was there hope after Israel's rebellion? Is there hope for us today in our rebellion? We who are quick to forsake him for the sake of another. I offer you that, yes, there is. It is found in none other than God himself who works all things according to his purposes and for the sake of his glory. He acts for the sake of his name among the nations. One time he saves from bondage, the next he is long-suffering and averting his wrath. He then chastises and purifies so that the people may know that he is the Lord. And finally, he will remind them of their evil ways, but also abundantly grant them his mercies by restoring them and not repaying them according to those same evil ways. The Lord's name is holy. It is holy, holy, holy. God is holy in and of himself. People are not holy. And we depend on him for holiness and sanctification. He commands us to be holy, but the mind that is set on the things of the flesh cannot please God. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So what is the remedy? We cannot do it in and of ourselves, but praise be to God who has regenerated us by the Holy Spirit who inhabits us, who empowers us with the ability not to sin and tasks us with holiness so that his name is not profaned. In Christ, we have truly become free from our bondage to sin and to the flesh. We have been set apart, which means we have been sanctified for the works he has prepared for us. And this is the purpose of God that underlies this part of Ezekiel. It was for his name that he called Israel out of the nations and us out of the world to be a remnant for himself, not to insulate ourselves with his blessing, and to stay inside a cocoon and 
relish in the blessing of God and keep it for ourselves, but to be a conduit, a vessel for his mercy and grace to the nations and a place of manifesting his holiness among us. He does all things for the sake of his name, and he has made us his people for his glory. Let us then consecrate ourselves for the will of God because he wills our sanctification, and that's why his name means his purpose. He is the Lord who sanctifies, and he is faithful to do it. In truth, he is so faithful that after 32 verses of citing rebellion, we have one of the greatest passages of restoration in Ezekiel, maybe even in the whole Old Testament. This promise comes against the flow of the story. Up until this point, it was all about their rebellion and them deserving his wrath. It seems as if it's coming out of nowhere, definitely not due to the people's merit, and surely because of his great grace and faithfulness. He will restore his people to true worship of him and to be in the middle of his grace, coupling together a strong hand of deliverance and a wrathful hand of judgment. Look with me at verses 31. I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of people. And then he moves on. Let's, let's move on to verses um, 34. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And again, he repeats it later on in this, um, in this passage. You see, the discipline of God brings together both judgment and deliverance. So do not despise the Lord's discipline. In verses 33 through 38, his discipline is severe. It includes a rod and a bond in verse 37. It's also purifying, purging out the transgressors. In verse 37, he says, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And then verse 38, he says, I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. The people had scattered themselves among the nations. They intermixed with them and followed their abominations. In a short while, God will scatter them even further, this time to Babylon. Yet mercifully, this will result in them being gathered together in exile, chastised, refined, purified, and then returned to the land as he renews his covenant with them. Once the Lord purifies, he always follows his act with a command. It was so when he delivered the people from Egypt. He saved them first from Egypt, and then he gave them the law to obey. It will be so when he returns the people from their second exile in Babylon. He will return them from exile, deliver them, and then he will command them to walk in his ways and worship him alone. And it was so when he delivered us from our exile to sin and death. He saves us first, then gives us the command to be holy. This is the purpose of verse 39 which calls the people to forsake all idols because he does not give his glory to another and he will make his name known as holy. He will save them once again and he will command them to obey him and be consecrated for him. 
So we come to the epitome of this promise of restoration in the last few verses, by which he faithfully renews his covenant. Look with me at verse 40. He says, he wills the people to worship him. He tells them, you will serve me in the land. And then he accepts them as an offering in the first half of verse 41. He will accept them and their offerings once more. In the second half of verse 41, he says, he will manifest himself among them, making his dwelling place in their midst once again for all nations to see. In verse 42, he says, they will all know that he is the sovereign Lord and the Lord of hosts who does wonders. And look at verse 43. There you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. They will repent bitterly and have godly sorrow for all they had committed. Brothers and sisters, a contrite and a broken heart is needed when we repent from sin because it is an affront to the holy God. And then verse 44, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. They will know him once more intimately for his name's sake because he is the Lord who sanctifies. Not according to their deeds, he says, but according to his mercy and grace. God declares that he will manifest his holiness among the people. That's been his purpose from the time he chose the nation to be his own, to be his vessel of proclaiming his glory and purposes among the nations, to be the place where his dwelling is among his people, to be the place where the nations come to be healed, to be consecrated for the work he is doing. When the people rebelled and positioned themselves against him, they not only profaned his name, but also subjected themselves to death, and they were not a place of healing for the nations. So God chastised them. He punished them. He gave them over to their devious ways and brought the nations to them. The nations were supposed to come to worship and to be healed. That's why there's the court of the Gentiles, which is the largest part of the temple, because it was made for the nations to come and worship and wonder about God who is among them. But the nations this time are not coming to worship as God had originally intended, but to act as the Lord's right arm of strength to discipline his people with the rod. What the people refused to do in obedience, God brought despite their disobedience, even against the will and works of Israel. Yet once again, God proclaims that it was for his name's sake that he had ordained and performed all things, both wonders and disciplines, so that he would be known as glorious among the nations, and so that the nations of the earth, not the least of which the nation he had chosen for himself, would know that his name is the Lord, that he is the God who sanctifies, that he is faithful to the covenant he has made, and he will keep the covenant to the end. The problem of rebellion and idolatry has been ever-present. The people worship idols on every hill and mountain. The prophets give false assurance. The priests are being unfaithful. The counselors are wicked. The leaders follow after abominations. The kings make the people stumble. 
the whole nation which has been sanctified to proclaim the holiness of God and his salvation to other nations has all but fallen away into wickedness and debauchery. God lays the entire blame on the nations, not even mentioning any outside influence. They were responsible for their idolatry, which brought God to anger and his wrath was ready to be poured. Yet still not without the hope, as we saw in last week's sermon, that the soul, even the wicked soul, that turns away from sin shall be saved. Ezekiel 18, 27. And what we should say is that praise the Lord, his mercy is more. That there is still hope that the wicked soul, if it repents, it will be saved. And we today, like them, are quick to forget and eager to rebel. Maybe the circumstances are too hard at the moment for us to turn to God and ponder his mercy. Maybe it is the sins of others who have affected us and caused us grief. Maybe we find it hard not to swim against the flow of the culture that is around us. Maybe it's just more pleasurable to do the things that God warns against. And maybe that's why there's a book in the Bible, a book of wisdom, that is written about us seeking wisdom, forsaking forbidden pleasure, running away from enticements and from sweet waters that lead to bitterness. But the truth is that no one, brothers and sisters, no one is responsible for our disloyalty to God except ourselves. It is easy to blame others, but let's not blame others. Like the elders who came to Ezekiel, do we not forget about God and only remember him during our times of need? Like the rebellious cohort, don't we question him at the first sign of adversity? Like the disloyal nation, do we not come to God and question whether he is for us or against us? Rather than asking if God is for us, the question should be, are we for the Lord, for his name, for his glory, or are we against him? He is the Lord who sanctifies us. Let us not follow after abominations and defile ourselves. He is the Lord who is holy. Are we to desecrate ourselves in his name? He is the Lord who saves us. Let us not refuse his hand of mercy and his offer of grace. He is the God who guides us. Are we to follow others and seek guidance elsewhere? He made his covenant with us. Let us not forsake it to go after the works of our hands that neither hear nor see nor speak. He has to be provoked to anger to show his wrath. Are we ready and eager to cause him to anger? He disciplines those whom he loves. Let us not refuse the discipline of the Lord. He gives life. Why are our feet so quick? To shedding blood. He remembers his promises. Let us not be quick to forget his goodness to us. Martin Luther says our hearts are idol factories. Why? Why do we forsake the source of living water and run after waters that do not quench? Loyalty to idols, loyalty to anything else 
accept God as first and foremost in our lives is disloyalty to God. And I think it is because we want to be ultimately the masters of our own destiny. We want to be arbiters over ourselves. We do not want limitations or rules or laws. Sanctification is hard work. It's always been. God did not promise to have an easy life for us. The path is narrow. Paul himself laments this difficulty in Romans 7, and he says, Woe is me. Who will save me from this body of death? What I do not desire to do, that I do. And what I desire to do, I cannot do. Who will save me? The answer is, praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the one who sanctifies us. The hardness of sanctification does not undermine the glory of its fulfillment. It magnifies it. The harder a race or a climb is, the more glory there is at the end of the race or the top of that climb. Sanctification is hard, but at the end of it, there is eternal glory that will be revealed in us and through us. And we have Christ and the Spirit on our side, guaranteeing that he who is with us is stronger than he who is in the world. He is for us and ready to complete his work in us. As we near the end of our meditations today, I want to share with you this story that I love from Joshua chapter 5. The people had just entered the promised land and celebrated their first Passover. The Lord had been gracious to them throughout the rebellion. In his salvation, sustenance, strength for 40 years and even more than that. And defending them, even as they had been rebelling against him. Now Joshua is the leader after Moses and he's leading them into the promised land. And they are making their way up to Jericho, the great fortified city of the Philistines. And they are about to have their first conquest inside the promised land. Joshua looks up outside the city and sees a man standing before him with a sword in his hand. And Joshua goes to the man and asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Basically, he's asking him, are you for us or against us? Listen to the man's answer. No. The question is not even the correct question to ask. It is not the one that Joshua or we should be asking. The question should be, are you and I for the Lord or against him? The man responds and says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua does the only right thing he could have done. He falls on his knees and on his face and he worships because he had just seen the glory of the Lord. A Christophany. And he knew that the ground he was standing on was holy. And this is what we should do when we come before our God. Because oftentimes we're asking him, are you for us or against us? While the question that we should ask ourselves is, are we for the Lord 
or against him. Because, brothers and sisters, the Lord is for us. Everything about the word of God says that there is a God who is pursuing us despite our rebellion. We are faithless to the bone. But God is for us. The holy God is for us. He commands us to be holy. He enables us by his grace to be sanctified. It is not by power or by strength, but by the spirit of the Lord of hosts that we can stand before him and do his works. But it is not about us. He is jealous for his name. It is for his namesake and for his own glory that he does all things. That's why he commands obedience. But also praise the Lord. He does not leave it for us to do everything. He enables us to obey him by his spirit that is living in us. He might discipline us at times, but once he is finished, we shall be purified and renewed in our minds to see the sign of the covenant he has made with us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. He has promised us that the work of our sanctification will be complete. And then, after that, we will be glorified. God initiates, sustains, and completes our holiness by his grace and by his sanctifying discipline, setting us apart in a fallen world to do good works. This is the great promise we have, that once we were not a people, but now we are his own people. Once we were not a nation, now we are his holy nation. Once we were scattered, now he has gathered us together into his fold. Once we were unholy, given over to our passions, now we are his holy children. Once we were vessels of wrath, now we are priests of righteousness. The Lord has made us for himself. Now he has redeemed us as his possession. His commands are true. His precepts give life. His law is a delight. To be a child of God is to love what he has given us for our good and for his glory. For his name's sake, we must sanctify ourselves and love the word of truth, the gospel of our sanctification, the word of our hope. The soul that has tasted of the goodness of the Lord despises anything that is falsely sweet in this world. And as Proverbs 27 says, even tramples on honey and gold and all that glitters in this life. Because in his arms there are 10,000 charms. By his side are pleasures forevermore. These words have been written for our instruction by the God who is faithful, who has given us his spirit and the Lord's day that we gather on and the sacraments that we'll partake in in a minute as a seal of the covenant he has made with us. The covenant he remains faithful to, to the end. The covenant that we are called all together as a body of Christ to come together weekly to celebrate and feast on and remain faithful to him as he manifests his holiness among us. The question is not whether he is for us or against us. He is for us to the end. The question is, are you and I for him who is faithful to keep his covenant for us? Let us pray. Father God, we 
it is because of your faithfulness to us that we stand before you today. Redeemed from sin and death, given life and righteousness and joy to gather together and, and praise you, O oh God. Thank you that we have this promise of restoration today, that you will accept us once again. You were will in us to worship you, to be sanctified, to come before you, to, to accept us as a pleasing aroma before your throne, O oh God. Let us not forsake you for another. Let us not turn from Christ from the glory of our God, from the holiness of our Lord, for other things that do not satisfy. But God, as this promise is before us today, I know that some of us are weary and some of us fail. In fact, all of us do. Remind us, O oh God, every day of our lives that we belong to Christ and that in Christ we have 10,000 charms that we have the promise that you have predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son. And those whom you have predestined, you have called. And those whom you have called, you have justified. And those whom you have justified, you have glorified. And because of that, nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us be active in our sanctification, O God. Let us run after the one whose name is holy, holy, holy. And let us remember the covenant that you have made with us, that you keep it to the end. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, O God, to renew our vows to you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And to keep our end of the covenant, not by our own strength or by power, but by your spirit that inhabits us so that God alone may receive all glory and honor, so that his name would be magnified and glorified in Christ Jesus and in this church, now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. amen.